It's a very special evening with the moon and the sun together um, inviting us to uh, come more into the light. And for this evening I wanted to uh, talk about something that's also in a way uh, archetypal, which is to talk about the uh, journey to awakening, the different uh, stages and sequences on this journey. And I want to uh, organize it in a way by reading uh, one of my favorite poems, uh, Mary Oliver's poem called The Journey, which probably many of you know. It's a beloved poem. And I want to use this as a kind of organizing principle for looking at the different uh, aspects of the journey. And so I'll uh, begin by reading the poem and, and I'll be referring to it at different times in the talk and then I'll come back and read it at the end. How many of you know the poem? Oh, very good. So more on this side than on this side. <laughs> <laughs> The, the journey. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles, mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do, though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though their melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. So the metaphor of the journey is a wonderful one for looking at our practice. It's uh, similar in many ways to the, the metaphor of the path, that we walk on a path. And I, I thought just to begin by looking at these two metaphors, when we consider that we're walking on a path, or taking a journey, we're doing something that is, uh, uh, in a sense, very ordinary. We walk on a path the whole time, but it's interesting to reflect on what constitutes a path that we actually can uh, walk in a certain direction, but there is enough of a clearing so that we can move in a certain direction. So a path is different from 
just where there uh, uh, is no path, where there are things growing and things in the way and rocks and trees and brambles and so forth. A path uh, has made a kind of a clearing and we can move. Even if it's a small clearing, we can move in that way. And uh, likewise, the journey is an interesting metaphor because again, it's very ordinary. We take journeys uh, large and small all the time. But there's something interesting about uh, the journey that maybe is a little larger, that often we take a journey, we have to travel lightly just like you did to come here. Can't bring too many of your possessions here. <laughs> Although those of us with, with cars try our best. <laughs> and when we go on a journey, we in a way enter into the unknown. There may be things that happen that uh, wouldn't happen at home. Sometimes in a sense we leave our habits uh, behind or we leave some of our habits behind and we meet mysterious, magical strangers who teach us something, you know. And so uh, it's, a very, it's a very interesting metaphor. And what I want to do is to talk about the journey with a, f- a few reference points. Uh, talk about, again, the uh, sense of a spiritual journey with a few reference points. One is the poem, which I just read. Another one is the life of the Buddha. I'm gonna talk about the Buddha's archetypal journey, his story, which many of you know. I'll also uh, have as an important uh, reference point, uh, us, our journeys, what we go through, what we go through here on the retreat and in our lives. And I'll tell some of my own stories, and I'll bring in some of the stories of uh, some of the people we met yesterday, Achan Man, Achan Cha, some other um, teachers and sages from the Thai forest tradition. I'm gonna talk about, I think, uh, eight different stages or steps that I'll take us through and let us look at what the the different stages of the journey mean in our lives generally and also in our in our practice here the first is that we begin with the ordinary and the habitual the life taken for granted in a way at a certain point we have a second stage which is that there's some sense of the ordinary and the habitual not being sufficient or not being adequate or we want more or we are tuned in to the conditioning and the suffering of the ordinary and habitual. And then a third stage, and these are really often blended in with each other. The third stage is what I'm calling the sense of the call or the sense of I need to change my life or I need to shift uh, in a sense or have a kind of a turning. It's interesting, I think the word education 
actually means a turning. And so we have a kind of a turning, a call, and something decisive occurs. The fourth is that we, in a way, depart from the ordinary and habitual. The fifth is that we go through challenges, we have learning, we work with difficulties, there are struggles, ups and downs. And that's a stage that takes a while. (laughs) And then the uh, seventh is what I'm calling awakening. And I think as you see, as we'll go through this, I'm presenting it in a a more linear way, but it's not actually linear. We're actually awake at certain moments, and then the next day there's struggle. Is that familiar? (laughs) You know, and so the, the whole process is sometimes it's more linear, sometimes it's more uh, cyclical, sometimes it's more of a spiral. Sometimes it doesn't seem to fit any pattern. (laughs) Then the last is we return to the everyday world. And so we really, we really have two perspectives here. We have the perspective that we explored last night where there's a sense that awakening is present right here in this deep and simple way of knowing. And in a sense, the path can happen and in a sense be over every moment, just as we as there's some awakening. And there's also a sense that it's uh, gradual. In other words, there's both uh, immediacy, there's almost like immediacy to our practice, and there's also a gradual nature. In China, among Zen scholars and practitioners, they used to have long debates about which is better, the gradual path or the immediate path. Um, these issues were not resolved. (laughs) So the Buddha sometimes talked about awakening being present right here, right at this moment, much in the way we explored last night. And he also talked about a gradual path. So he said he likened it to how the, uh, off the coast of India, there is a kind of a gradual deepening of the, uh, uh, as we go on the coastal shelf. He said this, just as the ocean has a gradual shelf, a gradual slope, a gradual inclination, with a sharp drop off only after a long stretch, in the same way, this Dhamma has a gradual training, a gradual performance, a gradual progression with a penetration to knowledge, that is that liberating knowledge only after a long stretch. Hmm. And then another time he said, I do not say that final knowledge is achieved all at once. On the contrary, final knowledge is achieved by gradual training, 
by gradual practice, by gradual progress. And so the stages I'll talk about, again, we can go through them in a linear way over years. Um, and we can also experience them uh, day by day, say, okay, well, I was relatively awakened that last period and now forget it. <laughs> you know. um, but still the, the, the map can be helpful to sort of point out certain aspects of our practice, you know, and um, as one of the great uh, yogis of the 20th century said, this is from uh, Yogi Berra. <laughs> he said, if you don't know where you're going, you will wind up somewhere else. We can pause with there. <laughs> yeah. This is another, another perspective from, I think, the 11th century. This is from the Sufi sage Hafiz. He said, light will someday split you open even if your life is now a cage. For a divine seed, the crown of destiny is hidden and sown on an ancient fertile plain you hold the title to. Love will surely burst you wide open into an unfettered, blooming new galaxy, even if your mind is now a spoiled mule. <laughs> a life-giving radiance will come. The friend's gratuity will come. Oh, look again within yourself, for I know you were once the elegant host to all the marvels in creation. So I'll be explicating a, a version of that. <laughs> Okay, so first we uh, are in a state where we're with the, what we can call the, what I was calling the ordinary and the habitual, which is sort of a, where we take things for granted. You know, where we aren't looking, where we may be happy, we may be not happy, but we um, don't see beyond the horizons of our maybe everyday life, maybe our culture, our, our conditioning. Again, sometimes we may be very protected, sometimes we may have very difficult childhoods. The Buddha lived in that kind of uh, situation. Some of you know his parents received a prophecy that he would be either a great ruler or a great sage. They preferred the first. <laughs> they were also told that he might tend to be a sage and leave the palace if he ever saw and learned of the difficulties of life. And so they protected him. And they tried to avoid any sense of pain, of difficulty, of um, illness, of the elderly and they just surrounded him with pleasures. Surrounded him with everything wonderful. Would travel so they would avoid any cold weather. And this is like uh, an extreme version of suburban living.
And so this was his early life. He did not know anything else. And we may also, I think all have had something like this where, again, it doesn't mean that we were necessarily having a life full of pleasures, but there was some way that we didn't question the immediate life we were living. And that still is in many ways the case probably for most of us. There are ways that we don't question. And then as we grow up, sometimes there are little ways that that uh, solidity of that ordinary habitual life has little holes that start to go into it. Sometimes we remember those as we are learning, as we're going deeper into the process. And in fact, the, uh, the Buddha, as he was actually, when he was uh, well on to his process, later remembered that when he was young, he uh, had the experience of being by a rose apple tree and going in very naturally to very deep states of meditation that suggested a different way of being. But he forgot about it. It was submerged. And I think maybe we've all had uh, moments like that where we something may have happened, but we forget it or it gets submerged or we get busy, you know. And... The second, second phase or the second stage related to the poem, I'm, I'm calling it the, the, uh, the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice. And this is where we start to see that some of the voices, some of that ordinary and habitual life actually may not be all to our good. That there may be actually uh, bad advice being shouted, you know, by our culture, by our, in our family, not to say that it's entirely that way, but a lot of what happens in meditation is that we sit and listen to the bad advice of the past and give ourselves further bad advice. <laughs> it's not all there is, but that you can, can see it in a certain way that way. So, so if that's helpful, you can, you know, later in our practice we can say, you know, label, bad advice number one, <laughs> bad advice number two, and so forth. So, the Mary Oliver talks about it as the old tug. So, in the poem, you can see there's actually been a shift. She's seeing this as the bad advice. There's, she's starting to see the conditioning. And this is when we start to have uh, questions arise. We start to have a sense that there are our issues, or that everything doesn't fit together so well, or that what we learned in school doesn't completely hold up. Or there may be, uh, there may be certain experiences that uh, occur that sort of puncture the solidity of the ordinary. Sometimes it can be an illness. Sometimes we lose a job or a relationship ends as adults, you know, sometimes we have experiences that rupture the safety. It can be personal experiences. It can be, um, there can be experiences of a more social nature. I know for myself, there were, those had a important role. I remember just starting to get a sense of the um, pain of the world, you know, as a boy. And I remember 
when I was like 11 or 12, I read uh, a book by William Shire called The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich and learned about that. And that is, what is that like as 11 or 12 year old, right? How does, how does, how can I understand that's unfathomable, right? And so, and something doesn't fit or there's something that they're suffering or for myself also, you know, I grew up in Maryland and it was a little bit like a southern town with a railroad tracks through the middle. On one side, there were poor blacks living on roads that were not paved. On the other side, there were working class whites recently come from Appalachia. Then there was a middle class. And then if you go a little further, the suburbs start, right? And going to school with the black kids and then, uh, you know, going to their place, it was something was confusing for me. Something, you know, didn't fit with that picture. And then, you know, at a certain point, then there were later with junior high, there was segregation. You know, uh, the working class whites and the blacks went to one school and the people who were more middle class went to another just by the boundaries. And something was confusing for me. It didn't fit together. And later, you know, learning of, uh, learning more about racism, learning about, uh, you know, at that time I was growing up, the Vietnam War was there. And I actually lived for a year in England. And, you know, as a 14 or 15, 15 year old, and just experiencing um, more consciousness of the problems of the world. And there were, so there was a lot about Vietnam at that time. And um, it was uh, sort of rupturing that safer world, you know. And so it can be, again, it can be uh, personal experiences. It can be more social experiences can really make us make us uh, wonder, you know, and we can um, have that sense of uh, everything isn't quite lined up. And for the Buddha, as many of you know, he was in this extremely privileged position and he started to have a sense of dissatisfaction with everything, with all the pleasures, you know, and his father was beginning to get very, very nervous. And there was um, one evening, his father had a great party for him as a prince. He was a prince. His father was a king. And he, at this party, there were the most beautiful music, the most wonderful dancing, and so forth. And it was in honor of the Buddha's uh, son, Rahula. And that night, the Buddha was very uh, anxious. Something was stirring in him. And he went outside the gates of the palace. And it's said that he went on successive nights outside his usual boundaries. You know, we can take that as a metaphor. You know, when have I or when have we gone outside of our individual boundaries and what, what did we learn? And he went outside those individual bound, those boundaries of his palace. On the first night, he saw an old man and he had never seen the elderly before. And it was a shock to his system. On the second night, he saw someone who was ill. 
a man who was ill, a person who was ill. On the third evening, he saw a corpse. He didn't know about death. And he was beginning to be shaken. And on the fourth evening, he saw a wandering mendicant who was in search of awakening. And he had never known about that. And this all really uh, punctured the safe world that he had lived in. And we may experience something like that, you know, as we practice this, this um, way that certain experiences suggest that whatever, gaining money, security, this relationship, that relationship, well, well not to be uh, criticized, may not be all there is. I remember reading an account of a man who had won the Nobel Prize. And he said, you know, and he was a scientist. And he came to say, at a certain point I realized winning the Nobel Prize, there's more to life than that. (laughs) Right? And the horizons got bigger. And he brought in, he said, I want to develop a more loving heart. I want to be wise. And after a while, even the Nobel Prize seems like the consolation prize. Right? And so our horizons open up like that. And the voices that would keep us, as it were, in the palace, in the house, with the habits, keep speaking. That's the bad advice, the tug, right? And so that's to be expected. As we go into new territory, the old voices will speak. They may often be very compelling, right? And we know this, don't we? We know this, how we say, don't go there, don't go too far. Or there's a way in which, um, you know, we actually prefer known suffering to the unknown. Watch for that. Does that resonate some? We want the security so much that we would rather have suffering because it's familiar than to go somewhere new. And yet that's what's being asked for. I remember for myself, there was a a period when I felt I had been um, teaching. I had been teaching at a graduate school and I felt I was getting too busy and I'd been doing that. I'd been very active with um, uh, co-editing a journal and being taking leadership roles within Buddhist Peace Fellowship. And um, I felt I needed to drop everything for a while. And I organized basically about a year and a half with minimal responsibilities which was privileged to do. Where I would just, I was able to get a kind of sabbatical where I would work five days a week. Five days a month, I'm sorry. (laughs) Five days a month is better, (laughs) you know. And and kind of have enough money to live on. And uh, everyone in all the organizations I was with told me, 
that the organizations would suffer if I did this. That tug, right? You know, mend, what did the poem say? Uh, mend my life, each voice cried. And the journal, I, I was going to finish being with this journal, and they said, if you don't stay with it, because I had been kind of the coordinating editor, they said, oh, it'll fall apart. And it didn't. <laughs> <laughs> You know, and I was told by th three of these places I was basically leaving, if you go, there'll be problems. And so, and that, that's hard, isn't it? That's hard, and one has to somehow know what to do. Same thing happened with the Buddha. You can imagine, because he was leaving his young child and his wife, you know? And he had a lot of inner voices saying, don't leave. And in the stories, the devas, or the kind of heavenly beings, they would say, leave, leave, <laughs> leave, leave. So they had this internal, internal dialogue. So the Buddha had an internal dialogue, uncertain about which way to go, so don't worry if that happens to you. <laughs> Further, because I know it happens here, doesn't it? He was like, which way, which way? When I first started meditating, I had been living a year in Germany, and my initial first month of meditation was being with the breath for a few seconds. And I didn't know whether I wanted to go back to Germany or being in the US. So I would, I would, I would say, in, out, in, out, Germany, United States, <laughs> Germany, United States. <laughs> for about the next three quarters of the meditation, oh, in, out, Germany, United. So, you know, that was my first month. After a month, I knew where I wanted to live and I went on to other ways of going back and forth. <laughs> so interesting to ask yourself, what were the messengers that woke you up? What brought you out of that um, preoccupation with the ordinary? You know, was it suffering? Was it... Uh, crisis? Was it uh, a thirst for knowledge or for really wanting to explore the mystery of things? What was that for you? At a certain point, this is the third stage, there's the call. And we're clear about proceeding in a different way. We don't stay in the house. In the poem, we start to go out, and you can see in the poem, there's a storm. It's difficult. We're moving out of the house. The house is like the metaphor for the habitual, the ordinary. Right? It's interesting that the Buddha, one of his key metaphors was talking about us living in a house that's burning and not realizing that it's burning, like children who are in a burning house. And we don't realize that they're suffering. We're infatuated by the toys. And so it's interesting, same metaphor, that we have to somehow leave that burning house. Interesting thing about that, the sense of the call, is that we actually hear it many times. We may many times hear, oh, ourselves say, I'm really, called in this direction. And we may have it very strong for a day, a week, a month, and then we get busy. 
you know, where then something else comes. So I think it's important to think about this call as occurring often many times for us. It's not like I hear the call, I answered it, I went on the journey, came to awakening. <laughs> That's it. I, when I was in my 20s and practicing a lot, I thought it'd kind of be that way. I thought I would practice a lot. At the time, I was wanting to go to Asia, be a monk, practice a lot, get to some level of awakening or other, and then come back and see what came next. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the call occurs many times, so that's really important. Because the fact that we've heard the call, we've had a really clear sense of going in a certain direction, and then life intervenes, or um, plans intervene. What does that uh, line go? Like, life is what occurs when you're busy making plans? <laughs> Something like that. Yeah. And so, very, very crucial to know, to, you know, that we actually hear the call, and, and maybe it's like cumulative. At a certain point, the call, all the calls of the past have a certain force, and we reorient our lives in a major way. Maybe it's like that. I know for me, I heard these different kinds of calls. I remember when I was about 20, I was in college and I met uh, Ramdas, this beloved teacher. And he had just come back from India and I didn't know what he was. And I didn't know, I didn't know much about spirituality. My, I was really, at that time, I was, saw myself kind of like as a activist and a more interested in social, political matters and so forth. And, um, but I was starting to be interested in, you know, I was getting interested in poetry and looking more deeply at, at life. But he came and he wasn't well known at all at that time. He, he met in a chapel with people for three straight days, like for four or five hours at a time. There were like 10 or 12 people. He wasn't well known, hadn't published anything. And for whatever reason I went there, and I, had not, I don't think I had the slightest idea what he was talking about, but something, <laughs> some, something called me there. There was something there. I just stayed there for the four hours. And I don't, you know, I really don't think I knew what he was talking about, but, but maybe, it was, maybe it was this energetic field. <laughs> some, something was there that was calling me, and I kept going back, you know? And, and that was some, there was some kind of call there. And then, you know, he left and I went on to what I was doing. So the call can occur many times. This is from one of the uh, great woman teachers in the Thai forest tradition named uh, Mechi Chow. She talks about her experience as a young girl. When I went to the monastery as a young girl, I had to be accompanied by my parents and I wasn't allowed to mingle with the monks. While listening to the monks discuss Dhamma, I sat way in the back. The venerable meditation master taught us to pay homage to the Buddha and how to praise his virtues with chanting. He, encourages that he encouraged us to radiate loving kindness to all living beings and to always be open-hearted and generous. He told us that no matter how generous we were as lay supporters, the virtue of that generosity could not compare with the virtue of ordaining as a white-robed nun and earnestly practicing the way to end all suffering. That message always remained close to my heart. So something was touched there. There was a call and she later 
became one of the uh, wandering nuns. They wandered like the monks and in groups and would practice uh, just as deeply. So I remember for myself, this, there was this shift and the call came. Maybe, maybe it was my first retreat. There was something, um, was, I think it was my first retreat I, at IMS. I had done a one week Zen retreat, which if I can remember correctly, did not include instructions. <laughs> And I also, I also remember we were practicing in a house and there was a rock and roll band practicing next door. <laughs> That's what I remember from that retreat. And it was, kind of, it was kind of neat, but I think I didn't really know what I was doing. So the first, and I had a sense that Zen wasn't for me. <laughs> but then I, I went to a retreat at IMS, which was, a, I think, a two-week retreat. And, you know, it was hard in certain ways. I remember I was... You know, I was very concerned about not using up too much energy at first. So I was really checking, am I using up too much energy? <laughs> you know how that is. You know, the first retreat kind of, you know, it's a weird scene and what am I going to do and so forth. And anyway, after a while I settled in like, like you're doing. And there was something, that retreat there was like a homecoming. And I said, this is, I have something I feel... This has touched me deeply enough. I know my life has changed in a radical way. And it really was something like that. There was some sense, you know, a lot of the details of life take time to work out, but something occurred there. And so, in a sense, we start departing. The fourth stage is departing from the ordinary life. And it doesn't necessarily mean that we even change our work or literally go off like the Buddha did on a quest, but maybe something changes internally. You know, so it doesn't have to be external, this departure from the ordinary. It can be that we, something shifts where we, we say like, I will really uh, organize my life around mindfulness, around kindness, around wisdom, around skillful action. And th- it may be something like that. It doesn't have to be dramatic or even be recognizable to other people from the outside. But there's some kind of a shift, you know. And for, in the poem, Mary Oliver says, it was already late enough in a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. And she leaves the house. And there's that kind of uh, challenge of doing that, right? And as she goes further away, there's uh, a settling, the sky settles and the moon is there and so forth. And, um, and so the Buddha does eventually leave the palace. He leaves, he becomes a mendicant and he goes out in search of awakening, in search of what will let him live with an understanding of suffering, of old age, of the possibilities of life beyond the palace or beyond the habitual, beyond the conditioning. The fifth stage that I'm identifying 
is maybe where a lot of the practice happens, where this is where we um, have our ups and downs, where we go through sometimes struggle, difficulties, have insights, awakenings, go through this process that we sometimes call purification. We have to face uh, the difficulties. And we also can have uh, beautiful things occur. For the Buddha, he spent six years on this search. And there were ups and downs. And he had doubts and confusions. He went first to one of the most prominent teachers of the time, named Alara Kalama, who was a teacher of concentration. And some of the practices that he did developed deep, deep concentration where there would be light opening up in the mind and states of great bliss. And the Buddha became an adept in those practices to the extent that his teacher said, you are my peer, please go teach in my lineage. And something in him said, this isn't it. He was dissatisfied. He could, he could attain bliss, but it didn't really address the question of suffering. Because when he wasn't in the bliss, there was still the suffering. Right? He went to another teacher and explored in a similar way other kinds of concentration practices, really with the same results. He then tried uh, practices of denying the body, what are sometimes called practices of self-mortification, where he, at one point he ate very little. He sometimes would eat like one nut or one seed a day. He became very thin and there are sometimes statues you can see. I, m- I know, remember staying in a monastery in Thailand where they had the, you know, uh, I guess a bronze statue of the emaciated Buddha from that time. And it was said sometimes that he would press in the front and feel his spine and press in the back and feel the spine. And he was close to death. And something in him said, this isn't the way either. There was a lack of um, a peace, really. And at a certain point when he was emaciated, he was on the banks of a river and a young... uh, milkmaid named uh, Sujata came up to him and offered him milk with porridge, which was against his uh, ascetic rules to accept. And something in him said, what I have just been doing is not the way. He was confused. He was close to death. And there are, you know, you read the text, there are a lot of struggles that he went through. It wasn't some easy, fast road to awakening, you know. In some ways, it's not different from what we're experiencing. And something in him said, I have been following like a extreme path and I should accept this milk. And he did and he gained in strength, you know, and uh, I've had talks with John about this. We'd like to understand this as as kind of uh, a taking in of the feminine, Uh, kind of, you might say that he was rejecting the hyper-masculine 
heroic path. That's how I like to interpret this. And that he took, he took on the feminine. And he, he, at that point he talked, started talking about the middle way. And it was actually that uh, opening to that. Again, I would like to think of as the, more the balancing of the masculine and feminine that actually led to awakening or was a, a, a cause that um, opened up in that way. And so in, that, in this period though, this is really, once we've started practice in earnest, a good part of our practice lives occur in this stage where we learn really to open to difficulties to practice with them. You know, and in my own experience, there's been kind of a balance of uh, informal practice, and I think maybe in, in daily life as well, but very clearly informal practice, kind of a balance of some retreats and some periods where it seems to be a lot of difficulties. And I can think I've had retreats that were, one retreat was primarily fear. Other retreats, fear was, was strong at times. Another retreat was like, virtually 10 straight days of anger. You know, another, another retreat, very strong self-judgment and looking at that. And other times there was more like an opening to peace and quiet and concentration. And in my own experience, they've kind of, especially in the initial years, they were somewhat balanced, which I think is important for being interested in continuing. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, that's the way it was for me. And I think, you know, the, the kind of approach we take here is to really trust in the unfolding of our experience. And sometimes there are difficulties and sometimes there are wonderful experiences and it's usually a mix. And, you know, the approach we have here is we don't really try to um, um, rush our defense mechanisms or sort of, you know, strongly aggressively deal with our defenses. We let them kind of melt. And so it tends to be a more organic. When we're ready to open to this difficulty, we, we do that, you know? Of course, in, in life, sometimes there's circumstances that force us to look at something, but the, the spirit of the retreat is that there's a kind of an organic unfolding. We don't try to push, really. You know, we, um, and I think there's a, there's a lot of uh, gentleness to that. And things tend to open when they open. And we learn to we learn to be with the fear, and we learn to be with the anger, the self-judgment. We also learn to be with the joy and the beauty. And it's um, it takes courage, and it takes really staying with it. Uh, maybe a story, one of my one of my fear stories. I probably have a, a several, <laughs> like all of it. Maybe not more than several, but. Um, there was one retreat that I was doing in England. I remember it because it was in 1989. And when I was there, the uh, San Francisco earthquake occurred. And my, I mean, this isn't really part of the story, but my, my teacher um, got it wrong. And he came into me two months into a three month retreat and said, uh, Donald, uh, the big ones happened in San Francisco. <laughs> Not so, not so skillful. <laughs> uh, 
And so I had kind of visions, horrible visions for like a day. And I said, oops, uh, you know, it wasn't the big one. <laughs> anyway. Uh, but before that, <laughs> so before that, uh, I had been practicing and I was at a retreat center where I had a little cottage and there were retreats going on, you know, periodically, kind of like we have here. Every, you know, five days a week, 10 days, whatever. And so I was there for three months and I would, uh, certain, I would, uh, would mostly stay in my cottage and meditate there, but, you know, I would go into the meals and eat with the retreatants. I probably listened to a talk from time to time. And at a certain point, I decided I wanted more solitude. And I, um, I went back into, uh, I brought the meals back and I stopped eating meals in the, in the in dining hall. And it seemed to trip some wire that aroused anxiety and fear. It's interesting, you know, and I started to feel anxious. I started to have a lot of nausea come up. It wasn't actually explicitly fearful thoughts. It was almost like on a body lo- level. And it started to get really thick. My body felt incredibly heavy. I sort of knew that it had to do with, the, with uh, some further level of solitude that scared me, right? And I uh, was like that for three or four days. And I talked with, um, um, I remember talking, I was working with Christina Feldman. And she wasn't the one who told me about the earthquake. So. <laughs> <laughs> okay. um, and... And I think, no, I talked with another teacher first. And he said, uh, um, he said, what's missing in your experience? I said, he said, in terms of the model of the factors of awakening, what's missing? And I said, joy. (laughs) And he said, do that which cultivates joy. So I went out and looked at spider webs and looked at the trees and connected with nature. I felt wonderful. This meditation is so cool, you know. And then uh, a few days later, Christina talked with me. She said, what about that fear? And I said, oh, yeah. And, and I also said, I'll go back. And you know, one of the things that would bring me joy, I'll just go back and eat with the, in the dining hall, right? So I went back. The nausea went away. The anxiety went away. And then Christina said, what about that fear? I said, oh, yeah. Hmm. And I said, okay, I think I would need to look at that. And, and I remember meeting her in the morning. I said, I'll do it after dinner, not right away. <laughs> right. Um, and so then I kind of gave myself a pep talk. I read some spiritual books. I gave myself, you know, cheerleading to, I'm going to, you know, when that nausea comes, when that fear comes, I'm really going to be heroic and deal with this and work this all up and was going to be this heroic figure, read all these books, got really inspired. And then dinner came, I went and got my food, went back to my cottage, sat down, waited for the fear to come. I was just going to work with it really skillfully, <laughs> mindfully, bringing loving kindness, you know, the whole works, really show I'm a, a mature meditator. And, and um, nothing happened. <laughs> yeah. Later I, I thought, okay, it's like if I was willing to face the fear, the fear left. It's like a children's book that is called The Monster Who Grew Smaller. When we actually face the difficulties, they grow smaller. Interesting, isn't it? 
There's something important there. And so we, we work with the difficulties. I, I would love to take another hour and talk about various stories of working with difficulties and also working with the beautiful states that arise. But I want to get to awakening. <laughs> so um, things seem to open up more and more for us. And we may come to have uh, moments of awakening. For the Buddha, the awakening was a great awakening where he came to see into the nature of things. Maybe it's to have that sense of uh, deep knowing be there in a stable way that didn't leave him. And to have greed, hatred, and delusion have no hold. That's how it's often talked about. The awakening is often talked about negatively in terms of those qualities, sometimes, sometimes more positively. There's a chant that's done that expresses that awakening. It goes like this. Swakato Bhagavata Dhammo Sanditiko E akaliko ehi pasiko opanaiko bachatangwe ditapo winyuhiti. The translation is this discovered and well proclaimed by the Blessed One, the Buddha. Sanditiko, apparent here and now. Akaliko, timeless, immediate. Ehi pasiko, come and see. Opanaiko, onward leading. Bachatangwe. Bachatangwe, ditapo, winyuhiti, experienceable by the wise. Another expression of it that I love is from the Tibetan tradition, from uh, Dagpo Tashi Namgyal from the 16th century. It goes like this. Uh, the quality of the natural mind that is open like the sky, pervasive like the earth, unshakable like a mountain, shining like a flame, lucid like a crystal. So there, there are large awakenings, and I think very important for us is there are also small awakenings. There are moments of awakening and for me, actually, the awakening can be demystified. I think of the great awakening as just the achievement of a certain level of tremendous stability of awakening, but we experience awakening at different moments. I think that's really important. Awakening is actually pretty accessible for a moment or for a few moments, but to stabilize it, that's a lifetime's work. I think that's very important because awakening isn't necessarily mysterious. It's that moment when we're with that knowing and there's no stickiness. There's no fixation. And we experience, we've all experienced that and we cultivate that here and that's really, really important. The seventh step is the return. 
the return to the world. In the poem, it's we go deeper and deeper into the world. The Buddha at first didn't want to return. He said, this awakening is so simple and profound that no one will understand it. And it's said that the king of the gods came down and said, the great teachings are in danger of being lost. And he spoke to the Buddha and said, please teach. There are some with but little dust over their eyes who will be interested. And it's said that after that, the Buddha surveyed different beings and he said, yes, that's true. There are some with but little dust over their eyes. I will teach. And so he returned to the world. And we, and again, this is something we continually come back to the world. We, you know, for us particularly leading these everyday lay lives, we um, may do retreats and there's a beautiful back and forth uh, rhythm, whether it's from retreat to daily life or from just the daily sitting or the time of cultivating that peace to being with our daily lives. And we have that rhythm and we keep coming back. And some of us may, the cycle may be long. You know, we may do retreats and then return, but there's this sense, and the Buddha spoke very explicitly, it's out of compassion. So there's the wisdom and there's the compassion. The compassion calls us to be with others. A Tibetan teacher that I um, learn a lot from, even though he died 20 years ago, Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, he says, don't forget sentient beings. (laughs) And so we find the ways that we will enter into the world and respond using our own gifts and on the basis of our own practice and path. And then the last stage I'm talking about, want to talk about is really this reflection. In the poem, it's doing the only thing we could do. The Buddha often talks about doing what needed to be done, doing what was calling us in our, in our very being. And, you know, and, and the, the retreats are beautiful because they let us really get quiet and touch our deeper impulses, our deeper intuitions. It's one of the precious aspects of our being here, you know, that to be outside of the busyness so we can really listen deeply, listen to what's there, listen to those voices that otherwise get buried or get covered over. And really, really crucial, this uh, awakening of, of our deeper being, our deeper impulses, our deeper longings. So I'll, I'll end by reading the poem once more, maybe in the light of where we've been with these different steps. The journey, Mary Oliver. One day you finally knew what you had to do and began. Though the voices around you kept shouting their bad advice, though the whole house began to tremble and you felt the old tug at your ankles. Mend my life, each voice cried, but you didn't stop. You knew what you had to do. Though the wind pried with its stiff fingers at the very foundations, though there 
melancholy was terrible. It was already late enough and a wild night and the road full of fallen branches and stones. But little by little, as you left their voices behind, the stars began to burn through the sheets of clouds and there was a new voice which you slowly recognized as your own that kept you company as you strode deeper and deeper into the world, determined to do the only thing you could do, determined to save the only life you could save. Thank you so much for your uh, kind attention and for your following me on this journey, (laughs) sharing this journey together. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.com dot org slash donate.